Wow. The race is never too long for his mercy. The race is never too long that you will expire his mercy. That's good news, isn't it? Good news. I want you to turn to the most R-rated portion of all of the Bible. And I'm going to face it even with your children here, and you can go home and explain some things after church. It'll be all right. You probably need to anyway. It's time. But I want you to turn to the, the Song of Solomon. Song of Songs. And through February, the book of love will be our book of preaching. The book of love. Boy, I like this. I like to call this the romance of love. The romance of love. We'll go down through chapter 1. We'll go through chapter 2, verse 2. If we have time, we'll go on down through 7 to look at a couple of things. This is written by Solomon. It is um, one of the few books to which God is not specifically referred to. Maybe the only one. And there are conversations between a Shulamite woman and Solomon. Evidently, he knew her when she was a young girl, and he had courted her. And then after he had had about 700 concubines and a couple of hundred wives, mostly political arrangements. Marriage was a legal contract, and it was a political arrangement so that certain countries wouldn't invade. Solomon came back to somebody that he genuinely loved and for the first time tasted what passion and, uh, and romantic sex was all about in his relationship with a Shulamite woman. I probably should have advertised in the paper that this is going to be about sex and passion and relationships, and we would have drawn a crowd, wouldn't we? I mean, uh, especially if I announced that the wisest man on the face of the earth was going to discuss sex and passion and relationships. Solomon was the wisest man. I'm, I'm not referring to myself, obviously. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, and he's going to discuss sex and passion and relationships. And so uh, he tells us of this, and really is a record. It's a poetic record full of imagery from plants and the world, the natural world. It's a poetic record of his relationship. And he kind of binds it together, recalling snippets of conversation and how that relationship developed until finally he brings her into his chamber and they're married and then he has a banquet and a, and a dinner and then she makes a pronouncement to the virgins of Jerusalem. So this is instruction for all of us on what an intimate relationship is about. But it is also about Christ and his bride. Solomon, I read, a, I read a commentator this week who said Solomon represents the devil. Uh, folks, I, I just cannot see that. I've tried to understand that, and this is a man that I respect. And I, I set out of the about 10 commentaries in my library, I said all but two aside, because they don't agree with me. <laughs> and uh, I don't care what they I read all the story and all the arguments, but I still believe Solomon is a type of Christ. I believe the Psalm, four, uh, Psalm 45 is a tribute to this song. And sometime in your quiet time this week, read Psalm 45. And Psalm 45 is specifically identified with Solomon, as is the Shulamite's conversation in this book. 
And Solomon is specifically identified in Hebrews as a type of Christ from that psalm. So I'm, because two things are equal to themselves, I'm going to claim uh, unashamedly, this is Solomon that the Shulamite woman fell in love with. So it's about Christ and his bride. It's about a living union. It's about a fruitful union. It's about a, a, a lasting union, but it is also about a loving union. And let me say from the outset that I believe that what this first chapter speaks to is the loss of passion in our love for Christ. Some of us are going to serve the Lord if it kills us, and the way we look this morning, it probably will. And that's right where we are in our relationship with Jesus. Well, I, it's a set of activities. It's a list of rules. No, 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 no. My personal relationship with Christ is a passionate, zealous, intimate, wonderful love affair. And some of us need to fall in love with Jesus all over again. The same way some of us husbands need to fall in love with our wives all over again. If you could go to the film Rocky and you could see Paulie and Rocky walking down the street and Paulie says to Rocky, um, Hey Rocky, what is it you see in my sister? And Rocky <coughs> says, uh, well, Paulie, I've always wanted to do this. Well, Paulie, she got gaps, and I got gaps, and together we got no gaps. Now, did you hear what I said? She's got gaps, and I've got gaps, but together we've got no gaps. Now, do you realize how profound that is theologically? And do you realize how profound that is sociologically? Your wife has gaps. How many of you men in the choir would acknowledge that your wife has some gaps? <laughs> well, it's nice in the movies. All right. How many of you women would acknowledge your husbands have gaps? All right. All right. Let's see. I'll tell you, these honest women... I've got gaps, my wife has gaps, but together we make up so that we don't got no gaps, as Rocky says. <laughs> We've got no gaps. We complement each other, which is why God put man and woman together. Now watch how the gaps fit together. First notice with me the magnetic man. This is what a man's man should be like. This is what a woman wants in a man. This is her spiritual hunk. Have you got it? Right here. In Solomon. This, wait a minute. This book is just as inspired as the book of Romans. You might wonder why it got in here, but when you see the picture of Christ and his bride, you understand why this book is in the Bible. This is the way he loves us. And this is the way we passionately return love to him. So look at the magnetic man, starting with verse 1. Now, this is the Shulamite speaking. And um, uh, well, well, in verse 1, the Song of Songs, and literally in the Hebrew, it just means the greatest song Solomon ever wrote. He wrote 1,005 songs, and this is the greatest. And we start by the conversation of the Shulamite, because she reveals what makes uh, a man attractive. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Wow, 
What a way to begin a theological passage. For your love is better than wine. Now, folks, I've never been drunk on wine, but I understand that it's good for your health, according to the latest studies. But wine warms, they tell me. What else does wine do? Does, can you help me? Uh, I'm going to get these men one way or another. I'll tell you what. They got to stay awake today. It warms you. It makes you feel warm. It, it makes you feel good. It, it, it changes your palate. Let me kiss him with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Wow. That second word ointment is purified oil. She is talking about his character. What attracted him to her was his character. This is a man of integrity. He's been through the fire. His oil has been purified so that all around Jerusalem, everybody knows his name. That's why the virgins in the next line, the virgins, these daughters of Jerusalem who followed Solomon everywhere he went to attend to him, that's why they loved him. This was a man of character and integrity. Ladies, you don't read much about a handsome man in here. She doesn't care whether you're tall or thin or short and fat. What matters to a woman is character. That's why you see these 27-year-old women run off with 71-year-old men. They're not just seeing green. Maybe some of them see green. But it's character. I have watched couples together, and I wonder how in the world did she ever snag him? How in the world did he ever snag her? And the answer lies in the most, the most romantic thing about a man is that he is a man of trustworthy character and integrity. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, think of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, sing it, we sang it today. Jesus' name above all names. There is no other name. No other name can do for me what Jesus can do. This is talking about his character. Train your young men, parents, to be men of character. Listen to me, fellas. She doesn't care how far you can pass a football. She doesn't care whether you're driving a new caddy. If, if she's worth anything, she doesn't care whether you're driving a new caddy or an old caddy or a Chevette. What matters to a woman is every woman wants a man of trustworthiness and character and integrity, somebody she can trust. And all the women said, Amen. And is there any character more lovely than the perfect Lord Jesus Christ who is worthy of all of our passionate love and devotion? She goes on, therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. Take me away. Wow. That is an invitation. He's recounting their relationship. And she said to him at one time, I'm up here on this vineyard and I want you to take me away. I don't know about you. But if I was free and single and a woman said, take me away, I, that's going to light my fires. Draw me away, she said. Take me away. Now, wait a minute. Don't look behind that. She is saying, because you're a man of character, I trust you. And I feel safe with you. And I am, I am secure with you. So take me wherever you want to take me. I will tell you this. And listen to me, teenage students. If you love a woman and learn how to meet her needs, she will follow you to the ends of the earth. 
But if you do not know how to love her and meet her needs, she will not follow you. There will be conflict and there will be problem, but she must feel secure. The magnetic man is a man of godly character, and secondly, he's a man who is able to give godly security. Train your daughters, parents, to know a godly character when they see one. The world is full of women who've made wrong choices about men. And having chosen men who didn't have character, we must go back to the drawing board with our young people and say, here is what a woman of character is. Here is what a man of character is. And we must go back to saying, this is what God wants you to have. When you have a man of character and integrity, he will provide security and you will not be afraid to follow him and go with him anywhere on the face of the earth. Well, the daughters of Jerusalem answer back, we will run after you. If you leave, we'll run after you. <laughs> because we trust him too. Hold your hand here and go back to 1 Chronicles 22 for a moment, and you'll see something that I believe David built into the life of his son Jonathan from the very outset. In 1 Chronicles 22, in verse 5, David says, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. There must be a house built for the Lord. And then he called Solomon to his side and charged him, go build the house that I wanted to build, but I could not in verse 5 because I had great wars. Verse, nine, verse 8, great wars. Verse 9, behold, a son shall be born to you, God told me, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from his enemies. His name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. Now watch, he shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you, and may you prosper, and build the house of the Lord your God, as he has said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding, and give you charge concerning Israel, that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Now, where did David get the idea that God wanted him to be a wise and godly understanding man. I want to tell you this. David put that in the heart of Solomon near his death. He wanted to make sure that Solomon knew that there was a job to be done and that God would give him the power to do it. I believe that the father planted that in Solomon. So that when God said, you can ask one thing of me, what do you want? Solomon answered exactly what his father wanted for him. He said, I want to, I want to be a man of wisdom. God gave him and made him a man of character, a man of wisdom, a man of understanding, because his father David had trained that and built that in him. Teach your sons to be men of character, men of security. Next, teach your sons to be men of intimacy. Go to the next line. The king has brought me into his chambers. Oh, she's not saying he's trying to seduce her. What she's saying is, he let me into his life. This is where private conversation went on. He wants to talk to me. The mark of a godly marriage is the mark of godly intimacy. And godly intimacy and godly conversation are intended by our heavenly Father. It reveals who I am to her and reveals who she is to me. And this is the kind of man she wanted. 
the king has brought me into his chambers for conversation. Folks, there is nothing better than a man and a woman sitting down over a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and pouring out their hearts to each other. Some of us men, we don't even give our wives a time of day. We give them no direction. We give them no love. We don't give them affirmation. And that's why conversation is so important. I think intimacy and conversation are important aspects of our relationship with Christ. If we cannot lo love Christ without letting him into our burdens and into our needs and sharing our hearts with him, how can we do that with our wives? And yet one of the number one complaints of women is that their wives will not talk to them. Remember, this is a picture of how the church and Christ are to relate to each other. The king has brought me into his chambers. And oh, sir, if you just knew when you talk to your wife and when you let her into your heart, if you just knew what that does to her, that unlocks and she begins to pour forth. You say, I know, I'm married to a babbling brook. <laughs> well, she begins to pour forth and talk to you and that intimacy, that conversation, 117 times they talk to each other in this book and, and 55 of those are her speaking. I think Solomon was a master wise man, don't you? In time, he can get 55 uh, out of 117 for her and take the rest for himself. But you know what most women complain about? My husband doesn't talk to me. Sit down and talk to me. Tell me your hurts. Tell me your burdens. Tell me your problems. And then she opens up to him. I am dark, but lovely. She acknowledges to him that there's something wrong with her. Here's one of her gaps. O daughters of Jerusalem, I'm like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me. I am dark. I'm not beautiful. My, the sun has tanned my skin. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. That's what she tells him in the quiet, intimate moment. She unlocks a secret of hers, and that is that she feels not very beautiful. She doesn't feel very pretty. Her skin is too dark. In a day when when light skin was prized, uh, she was too dark. She had been out in the sun. Dark as the tents of Keter, uh, the Bedouin tribe that, that wandered south of Damascus and had all black goat's tents. And, and she says, oh, I'm not very attractive. I'm not very pretty. I'm not very good. Perhaps she came from a dysfunctional family. Her mother's mentioned. Her brothers are mentioned in the book. But her father's not mentioned. And she says, my brothers made me go out and work in the vineyards, which women are not supposed to do. And I'm, I'm, I was exposed to the sun, so I'm not really very pretty. Have you ever seen that? Some of the most beautiful women I know have told me I'm ugly. I'm, I'm terrible. I, I'm not very attractive. Have you ever known a beautiful woman who didn't see herself that way on the inside? I love the poem of Robert Burns. Oh, would some power the gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us, both good and bad. <laughs> and she says, I'm no good. And, and, and then she says to her beloved, uh, tell me, oh, whom, I'll, I'll show you how he responds to that in a minute. She goes on to say, tell me, oh, you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. Tell me, tell me where you're going. Now, this ends the section on the magnetic man. And notice the characteristics. He's a man of character and integrity. He's a man of security. 
He's a man of intimacy and conversation, and he has a great capacity for affirming. You're going to see how he comes back and talks to her in uh, response to verses 5 and 6. Now, the Shulamite has revealed what she is looking for in a man. Now she reveals how he's going to meet those needs, the wonderful woman. This is the wonderful woman who is willing to acknowledge that she has these needs. Tell me where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. Now, what she is saying is that every woman wants companionship. I want to be where you are. I want to follow you. Where are you going to be? I want to be where you are. I don't want to be like the one who veils herself and goes around the shepherds, the flocks of your companions. That was a prostitute. A prostitute who wandered through just looking for business. She didn't have anyone specific in mind. But the Shulamite woman says, I want to be with you. Companionship. That's a need that she's revealing that he meets in her life. And she is responsive to that. I mean, she is saying, oh, I want to be with you. Where can I find you? And he says, Feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. Come on, he says. If you do not know, verse 8, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock. <laughs> oh, my darling, he calls her. You know, they took a survey the other day of uh, the 10 most often used names that people uh, call each other who are married. Darling was number 10. Babe was number 5. Do you know what number 2 was? the second most common name for husbands and wives to call each other. It was their own name. It was their own name. And the number one most popular name that husbands call wives and wives call husbands was. Say it. Honey. Exactly right. Honey. Honey. He says, oh darling, fairest among women. And she calls him beloved. That's her favorite name. More than, than, than 40 times that is referred to, that same word in this text. So first, she wants his companionship. You know one of the things that you can do that's one of the most romantic things that you can possibly do is to go take a walk with your wife? You know, it's a miracle when I take a walk with my wife. We can talk about just the presence makes her think that I'm really interested in, well, excuse me, the, just the walk shows her that I am really interested in what she's thinking. Take a walk with your wife. Get off in a quiet place. Do something unusual and demonstrate that you desire to be her companion. When I'm in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, I have a promise that will never fail that he will never leave me nor forsake me, that he will be a constant companion, a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, Solomon said. And so notice in verse 8, not only does he meet companionship, but he gives direction. If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock. Let me give you some direction. I think that's one of the greatest things a man can do for a wife is to help her with direction. Yesterday, my wife had about four things that needed to be done. She said, I don't know whether to do this or do that and let that go or do that and let this go or whether to try this or to do that. And I am the problem solver, the great white father. I said, honey, it's no problem. Let's do that and then we'll do this. And then if you still need help, I'll do that for you. 
and then you can do that when it becomes available. And so she looked at me. She was satisfied. I just made her feel intimate towards me by giving her some direction. That's what Solomon does. He says, look, if you don't know, follow the flocks. You follow my flock. You'll find me. If you follow me, I'm always around. Wherever my interests are, you'll find me. I want you to be with me, and here's the way you go. O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock, my flock, singular. Feed your little goats, bring them along if you want, beside the shepherd's tents. But now notice next, he gives her affirmation. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. <laughs> he calls her a mare. That's not really very romantic. You remind me of my, my horse. That's what he says. You remind me of my horse. Now, what he's doing is he's showing a comparison. The chariots of Egypt would be pulled by all these beautiful, handsome male Arabian steer, uh, ma uh, males, uh, studs. <laughs> and uh, they, they're really studs. And, and these, these, these beautiful male Arabian horses, he said, if I put you out there in the world... The men would be attracted to you the same way that Arabian steeds would be attracted to you if I sat you in front of all of Pharaoh's chariot's horses and they saw how beautiful you were. They would break the bends of the chariot and go for you because you are that beautiful. That's what he was saying. You are set apart. Every man in the world will want somebody like you. Sir, that's your job. That's my job. To, to make my wife feel as if she is the only woman in the whole world that I really have eyes for. You know, it would do us well after we've been married 30 years, 25 years, 15 years. Take your wife's face in your hands and hold her face in your hands and look her in the eye and say, Honey, I would marry you again exactly as I did the first time. That's how much I'm in love with you. Now, put your hand behind her back. She probably will faint when that happens. So you want to catch her. But can you imagine the task of the man is to make that woman feel like Solomon made the Shulamite feel. You're a filly among Pharaoh's chariots. You are the apple of all those Arabian horses. eye. verse 10, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Oh, you don't, she came from a poor family. She says, I don't have anything. You don't need ornaments on your cheek. The beauty he's speaking of is an inner beauty that exudes out. You don't have uh, your neck full of chains of gold, but oh, your neck is so beautiful. Now, now that's something to tell her that her neck is beautiful, which holds up her head. You don't need to have chains of gold. You are so beautiful. And the daughters of Jerusalem cry out, we will make you ornaments with gold and with studs of silver. We'll make you all the jewelry you want, give you whatever you want. And now the Shulamite is ready to proceed. And he shows another aspect of their relationship. While the king is at his table, my spike nerd, verse 12, sends forth its fragrance a bundle of myrrhs, my beloved to me, that lies all night between my breasts. She's unashamed to say by her perfume and the myrrh, which she had hid, sashayed in her dress. She is saying, boy, I'm after you. She is saying, you're important to me. I've used the very best I have for you. Ladies, men love it. 
when you do that. Right, men? We absolutely love it. She is flirting with him. He is reminding her of how she flirted with him. You know, we've lost the art of flirting with our wives. Don't flirt with anybody else. We've lost the art of flirting with our husbands. I can tell when my wife is flirting. There are times when she teases me on, and it's amazing how she does it. I mean, it's just a, there's that little twinkle that nobody else in the whole world, out of six billion people in this world, there's one person who's got a little special twinkle in her eye that I can see and nobody else has for me. And that sets me apart. And she says, you are very special. And when somebody tells me that, it lights my passion inside. Oh, if we could just learn to have that kind of intimate, passionate relationship with the Lord Jesus and understand how much he loves us so that when we grasp that love, which is why Paul says, oh, I wish that you could plumb the depths and the breadth and the height and the, and, and the, 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 the width of the love of the knowledge of the knowledge of the love of Christ for you. Because if you can understand that, it would just be like a woman flirting with you. There ought to be passion in that relationship with Jesus Christ. There ought to be intimacy in that relationship with Christ. I ought to be afraid to pour out my soul and tell him nothing. Let me have a time when I just talk love talk to Jesus. And so she says, the king is at his table. My spikenard sends forth its fragrance. Now, please don't use so much that you make him sick. I have been in rooms where the perfume was so strong. Don't flirt that much. There's a limit to flirting. Amen. Can I get an amen from the men on that? Can I get any response on that? Yes. And then she says, my, in verse 14, my beloved Solomon is to me a cluster of henna blooms. That beautiful bush that, that bears all those blooms down in, in, in Getty, just west of the Dead Sea, in the middle of the desert is an oasis. There is one spring that flows down from the mountains and it pours forth water. And she says, you are like an oasis to me. That's why she hurries home to home from work. She wants to be with you. You're refreshing like the henna blooms of En Gedi. You are refreshing like the oasis around the spring. Sir, that's what she wants from you. She doesn't want more criticism when she comes home. She doesn't want more rules. She doesn't want more yeah, yeah, yeah. She wants you to be an oasis to her. Like in Getty is an oasis. You're a spiritual refreshing place. You're a pleasant place in the middle of the wilderness. And the beloved answers back, Behold, you are fair, my love. Ha, my beloved. Behold, you are fair. See, now he's answering back. Watch what he's done. When she said, I'm dark, I'm like the tents of Kedar, I'm not much good. She had a self-esteem problem. Notice how he builds her up. Oh, no. Boy, if all the Arabian horses of Pharaoh's chariots could see you, they'd break after you. You are fair. Your eyes are so beautiful. They're like the eyes of a dove. They're so large. I can see into them. You are so attractive to me. And then the Shulamite answers back, Oh, beloved, you are handsome, my beloved. How long has it been since you've been in a conversation like that with your bride? How long has it been? 
Since you sat there and she told you how handsome you were and you told her how beautiful she was and you told her how, how exquisite she was and she told you how, how strong you were and how wise you were and that there's no man on the face of the earth like you. We have lost the zip to the marriage because we've forgotten that marriage has to be a continuing romance. It needs passion. God built passion into us. God built intimacy into us. He wants to be intimate with us and the model for that relationship is intimacy with each other. And the marriage relationship is not a one-dimensional relationship. It is emotional. It is spiritual. It is physical. And God blesses them all. There is nothing wrong with the physical passion of marriage, the emotional passage of marriage, or the spiritual passion of marriage. As a matter of fact, you won't have much sing in your marriage until you really give your heart to Jesus when you make a commitment to him, then you have the character to carry out the covenant of marriage, which is why character is so important. So she says in verse 16, behold, you're handsome, my beloved. Oh, and you're so pleasant. You know, has anybody ever told you how pleasant you were? Rick, Suzanne ever tell you that you were really pleasant to be around? Yeah. Mark, anybody ever tell you how pleasant you are to be around? Anybody ever tell you that? Chuck, Edna ever say you were really pleasant to be around? A couple of times? A couple of times. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine a woman telling a man when she's just sitting looking at him with a piece of cheese and a cup of tea, saying, you know, honey, you are just so pleasant to be around. You're like an oasis. You're like a drink of fresh water. Sometimes you're even a Pepsi. <laughs> so, behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar. The rafters are fir. She's lying in bed. They're married now. And she's looking at the, at the bedroom. And she is so relaxed. She's, she's noticing how, how wonderful are the surroundings. See, the beams of our houses are cedar. Our rafters are a fir. Maybe she remembers when she first met him up in the country near the vineyard where her where Solomon may have had a vineyard and he met her younger, she had to work in the vineyard and she's talking about the trees in the forest and they met beneath there. And then she says, I am the rose of Sharon, a common rose. I am the lily of the valley, a common lily. How did I deserve you? She says. How did I get you? She's so common. And listen to his response. Here's where he gives affirmation again. Like a lily among thorns. If you're a lily, everybody else is a thorn. He says, so is my love among the daughters. There is none to compare with you. He sets her completely apart and says, there is no one in all the world. I love that little song they teach the kids in children's choir. Look all the world over. There's no one like you. There's no one like you. There's no one like you. That's what Jesus says to us. John, I've looked all the world over. I've never found anybody just like you, Jesus says. And that's why I love you. That's what Kathy said too. <laughs> I love you, she says. Because we may be a lily, but among everybody else. Blessed is the man who has eyes only for the one to whom he has promised himself. And when you love a woman... She looks different to you. You will never see her the same once you love her. Her gaps start closing when you love her, don't they? And then 
the Shulamite says, like an apple among the trees of the woods. Let's go to the romance of relationships as we wrap this up. The romance of relationships, what creates the, the romantic environment? Well, look at what she says. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. He tells her she's a lily among thorns. She says he's an apple tree among the trees of the woods. Apples were aphrodisiacs to them. They represented something sweet, delicious, refreshing. So is my beloved among the sons. And then she says, I sat down in his shade with great delight. Meaning, I love you, Solomon, because I feel so safe with you. You are protection to me. The romantic environment starts with being set apart and knowing that you're protected. A woman values security very, very highly. You may worry about the payment on the dump truck or the payment on the pickup, but she's worried about the power bill being paid because that represents security and warmth and protection to her. And then she says in verse 4, the Shulamite says to the daughters of Jerusalem, Oh, he brought me to the banqueting house. He took me out to dinner. <laughs> oh, sir, I don't know what it is about food in a romantic environment with soft music in the background and a candle. But if you haven't tried it lately, go somewhere other than McDonald's and try it, would you? Take her out somewhere. He brought me to the banqueting house. This is the marriage meal. His banner over me was love. As a military ruler will put a banner over to identify the army, he identified me as the one whom he loved. And nobody else will touch me now because everybody knows that I belong to him. I know you think I'm crazy when I say I love it when people brag on my wife because I work hard at making her as beautiful as she is. <laughs> I want to do everything I can. I want to brag on her. I want to talk about her. I want to build her up. Because there's no one else to do that. And in my walk with Christ, he comes to me every day, even when I fail, even when I make mistakes, and he gives affirmation to me. Even when I think that I'm no good, I'm like a common rose or a common lily, God says, oh no, Mark, you're very special to me because I've got a special place for you, and there's no one else in all the world like you. And she goes on to say, he sustains me with cakes of raisins, meaning his love is a sustaining love. Solomon's is. And she says, refresh me with apples for I am lovesick. <laughs> I can't tell you. If any woman ever told me she was lovesick for me, that would have been the end of it right there. I mean, I, I, I don't know what I would have done. What would you have done? I'm lovesick for you, the woman says. She told you that? She told you that. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know you've got a gem. His left hand is under my head. It culminates in this embrace. And his right hand embraces me. And now they're ready for the marriage relationship. And then suddenly she turns and says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field. Do not stir up. Don't flirt with a man. Don't awaken love until it's in the right time, until it pleases. Wow. I'm saying to all you virgins of Jerusalem, don't stir up love until it's the right time. God is saying marriage is the proper place for that kind of sexual embrace. And we need to teach our young people there is great joy in waiting till marriage and maintaining sexual purity.
Don't stir it up until it pleases, until it's the right time. And we'll have more to say about that as we go through the book. Willard Harley wrote a book called His Needs, Her Needs, and he lists the five needs of women. Watch how close they are to the book of Solomon. The fifth most important need of a woman is family commitment. The fourth is financial support. The third is honesty and openness. The second is conversation. And the first is affection. Just good old-fashioned hug. Affection means a lot to a woman. And he, in this book, he says the five needs of women, uh, men are, fifth, admiration, fourth, domestic support, third, an attractive spouse, second, a recreational companion. He wants somebody to go to the stock car races with him. And the first, you might guess for men, what is it, class? Sexual fulfillment. His most important need, he thinks. Well, look at how close the book of Solomon. Solomon didn't even have a Ph.D. in family life. And Solomon didn't even have all the advantage of, of reading People magazine or the disadvantage. But under the inspiration of God, he has laid down the needs of man and woman in showing this romance between him and the Shulamite that stands for all time. And it represents our relationship to Christ. Passion, intimacy, zeal, character, constancy, all the things that make for a godly man and a godly woman are the things that make for a godly marriage. I study this, and I, I have two responses. I, I, I've got six responses for you, but I'm not going to give them to you. I don't have time. But I have two that I want to make that just come out of my soul. Number one is, when I read this, I see an ideal, I see a standard that makes me want to go back. After I got through reading this and studying for it, I went in last night after supper and I saw a bunch of things that all needed putting up and I no surely wonder why has gotten into him. And so I put everything back in the refrigerator for her so that she wouldn't have to put it back and I helped clean up the table and hand dishes to her and rinse them off so she could put them in the dishwasher. I, and I know she looked, she didn't say anything, but she looked askance at me. What is he doing? What's happened? And I wanted to say to her, I didn't, but I wanted to say to her, I've just read Solomon 1 and I've got to do something. I've got to do something. But the second reaction was, oh, Lord Jesus, I don't want to go to church because I have to. I don't want to read my Bible in the morning because I ought to. I don't want to go witnessing because I should. Give me such a passion for you and such a love for you and such a zeal for you that like the Shulamite woman, I can reflect the beauty which you promote in me, a member of the body of Christ. There's an old song we used to sing. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and purity. O oh, thou Savior divine, all my nature refine. Till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. And I come away from this passage saying, Father, thank you for letting Jesus love me the way Solomon loved the Shulamite woman. And would you let the beauty of Jesus just be seen?
in me as I let him love me and fill in my gaps. Let's stand in prayer.